Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Well, A.B. Bishop says that she never really bonded with her given name. (laughs) I just love that. Uh, That's why she's called A.B. But something she has bonded to is her passion for native gardens. Her just-released book on native gardening is a feast of beautiful photographs and really nifty ideas and helpful tips to sustain and encourage native animals and plants to become part of your backyard. And it's actually even a little deeper than that. A.B. Bishop, welcome to Open House. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be on the show. Now, you, your first dedication in this book is to your sister for letting you share her bird hides and uh, instilling in you a love of bird watching. Are you primarily, did you come at this through gardening or did you come at this through bird watching? Oh, look, uh, probably a bit of both. I've, I've always, um, I, I suppose I've had a natural empathy with animals myself and an and innate connection with the natural world. So certainly um, there, there's been a, a bit of both for, for me. I live in an environmental living zone where we don't have fences, we don't have cats or dogs. So it's all about the protection and nurturing of the nature flora, natural flora and fauna. And um, so for me, it, it, all, it, it all ties in together. And in the book, I talk about food webs and chains and the importance of them. And so for me, birds and animals and you know, insects and everything go along with the plants. Just it's all much. one. So it was, yep. It is all one. I get that. And that, of course, is the reason the book is called Habitat. And look, we, we love at home... Um, planting things that are going to attract birds and other animals. So, But I think you've really helped me just coalesce all of this to say, yes, we're not making a garden at home, we're making a habitat. Yes, and that's so true. And, you know, we, the power is in the, the hands of gardeners. It really is. I mean, we have such a huge power to be able to go out and create an area that um, that critters will be attracted to and supported by, for sure. Probably why that was our very first occupation, gardening as a human race. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. And we, we do, we have that natural connection um, with with the environment and animals. I mean, that, that biophilic connection where we want to be engaged with nature. So, yeah, it's not much of an extension for us to go out and want to garden. <laughs> oh, biophilic, I love that. That's a good word. Now, listen, you live in this, what did you call it, an environment protection zone? Is that what you called it? It's a, um, called an environmental living zone, so it's special use zone slash environmental living, and it, yeah, it's all about protecting the native flora and fauna of the area. Because I've read also in your book that there is, uh, and I didn't know this, there's sort of an attempt to join up um, an entire well, environmental corridor, I suppose, but along that border between South Australia, Victoria, into New South Wales. Oh, look, there's, there's quite a few large-scale uh, habitat corridor initiatives, I suppose you'd call them, um, including, like, through Sydney, there's the, the Great Eastern Ranges initiative, which it basically it's connecting fragmented habitat um, all the way from Queensland through into Victoria, so through New South Wales and into Victoria. So there's a lot of these really large-scale habitat connection um, corridor um, programs in place and yeah I mean and small ones like the Sydney Cooks River to Iron Cove Greenway which is in Earlwood and yeah there's just a bunch of them popping up around the place. So are they working? I, uh, absolutely and I think um, 
I mean, as as the years go on, we'll be able to collect more and more data from the amount of critters that we're seeing an increase of. But certainly, um, the example that I used in Earlwood, the Sydney Cooks River to Iron Cove, that was a six-kilometre stretch along a, a, a sort of abandoned creek that was completely weed-infested. There were some um, bandicoots and, and other native critters kind of hanging on for survival. And now it's just this incredible green oasis that cyclists use, runners use, the school kids get down there for environmental programs mm. and, and the diversity in animal life is just huge. So, yes, mm. they work. Now, as you say, we're seeing a lot of those popping up around Australia. So we, we went through huh, th- tens of thousands of years where Aboriginal people looked after the land really well <laughs> and then a couple of hundred years where European settlers basically you know, wreck the joint for a bit. And now we're trying to bring those two ideas back together. Uh, just how much have you learned in your own walk in this habitat sort of uh, lifestyle that you live and in, in writing this book? How much have you learned from the Indigenous people? Oh, look, I mean, I try and do as much reading I can about um, just the, I, I suppose, the, the natural connections that Indigenous people have with the land. And, you know, I follow various um, um, people on Instagram, you know, like Country Needs People and that sort of thing. And so you're reinforcing these connections that Aboriginals have had with the land for a long time. And, I mean, really, the principles of the book are about food webs and chains. And that is simply about reinforcing those principles that um, Aboriginals have been living for you know, thousands of years. Mm, indeed. Our guest on Open House is A.B. Bishop, and A.B. is the author of Habitat, um, a practical guide to creating a wildlife-friendly Australian garden, and so much more. It is it is an extraordinary book, 300-and-something pages, and so many beautiful pictures. I just... You just want to hold this book and sort of love it. I just love reading it. But So now where do I start? I'm an average gardener. Well, your book suggests I start with the soil. The very first thing that you can do, which is such a simple thing, is bring water into your garden. Every critter from our lizards through to our birds and, and mammals, we all need water. And if you've got a couple of bird baths, or as I like to call them, hydration stations, because every critter needs those, that water, mm. if you've got a couple of them in your garden, you are going to start bringing critters in straight away. And um, But then, of course, yeah, if you're looking more long-term, absolutely start working on your soil first because it's the, it's the soil where it all starts and the soil is going to support healthy plants. Healthy plants are going to support pl- healthy animals as well as us. Um, you know, it's as much about us enjoying our gardens as it is so- to support our local wildlife. So, all right, there's the, there is the difficult issue of companion animals. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I mean, I'm I'm an animal lover. I love any animal, basically. I mean, we've got an absolute rubber plague at the moment, which is a bit annoying, but you just can't help but love them. They're so cute, and mm. we all love our cats and dogs, our pets. I mean, cats are, um, we all know that feral cats especially are an absolute huge problem around the country. Cats, feral cats kill around, you know, somewhere between five and 30 animals a night, and there's thought to be something like four million feral cats around the country. So that's a lot of critters being killed every night. And, and, and we we can make a difference ourselves by keeping our cats contained at night. I suppose that's the first um, message if you want to have a habitat garden or encourage 
birds, whatever, to the to the garden. Keep the cats contained at night. If you want to go the step further, there's plenty of cat enclosures that you can put in. Or have a separate section of your garden. If you don't use your front garden as much, have just have a separate section. Put it aside for habitat. Mm. I mean, habitat gardens don't have to be about giving your entire garden over to yes. critters. Yes, you yes. know, it's, it's, it's a balance. So now, as you said, uh, water is the great starting point, and then um, making sure the soil is going to support the sort of plants that you grow, and then, well, as I understand your your sort of philosophy, uh, you make sure the plants you grow are going to be food for critters. Is that is it simple as that? Yeah, yeah, it, it is pretty much as simple as that. But the plants are not only food for critters. So what might be food for one critter, like a seed eater bird, might eat. Um, grass seeds, whereas another species of bird might use that same grass as a nesting material or yes. even a place to nest. Yes, yes. So we don't need to be planting one kind of um, plant for each thing that we're trying to attract. Like one plant can do many, many things, but absolutely you're looking at planting plants that are um, might have a high amount of nectar and you'll be bringing your nectivorous critters. Um, but, um, there, of course, there's also lots of insects that love nectar and so by attracting them, you're going to attract the insectivorous birds. So it all kind of works in really well together. Now, structures are also very important. So my wife loves small birds. She loves watching small yes. birds. So, uh, of course, she's made sure she's planted lots of hedges and yep. suddenly these hedges are shelters for small birds who like nesting not very far off the ground and in, you know now we've got these blue tail i don't know whatever they're called oh, willy wagtail fantastic you know they're so yes. cute um what other sorts of structures should we be building into our gardens yeah i think if we come in our garden from the point of view of creating layers so horizontal layers and vertical layers so horizontal layers are simply things like having as wide a garden bed as possible so that we can have some beech shrubs at the back and then some you know some, maybe some dense thorny shrubs and then some grasses right near the front that will allow a bit of a lizard highway if you like and then if we can, to go up as well. So, if it's, you know, have the different storage. We might have a, a tree. It might not be a, a huge tree, but, you know, trees support a lot of different animals. And then we'll have mid-height shrubs and climbers and then grasses on the ground. So it's all about trying to get as many vertical and horizontal layers as we can. Now, what should we think about insects and spiders? <laughs> <laughs> I love it that people have certainly picked up on, on the fact that I like to encourage insects. And, you know, I started coming at my garden with new eyes, I suppose, when it, in terms of insects. Because we get so used to going out into the garden and being absolutely freaked by whatever insect we see. You know, is it going to hurt us? Is it going to hurt the plant? Is my plant going to be absolutely decimated? Where's my spell? What can I do? And so I thought, well, I, I, a few years ago, I completely stopped spraying and I just took a step back and a pause and just watch these critters and I mean they have such a fascinating life as well and when you think about it uh, insects I mean they are such a important food source for so many of our other critters you know even our possums and gliders they'll eat insects our skinks I mean we love our blue tongues and, and garden skinks and of course our frogs which are, are just an absolute joy to have around the place <laughs> that they they all feast on insects and if we yeah, start yeah. developing an insect attracting garden we're going to by default, be attracting all these other critters. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to get that as I <laughs> wend my way through life. And I even found myself, don't tell anyone this, AB, but I found myself admiring a spider's web the other day um, and just saying, yeah, actually, that's a nice adornment. I think I'll just leave it there. Yeah, totally. And it's interesting 
that you say that because in, in the book there's um, one of the case studies, I've got um, a few different case studies in the book and uh, one of the guys, David Duncan, he and his wife Sherry have created this, what they call a whisper garden and they've given their entire garden, entire back garden over to Habitat. So the front garden they've kept it as lawn and, and standard roses and whatnot and that's where they entertain mostly and out the back of all Habitat and the indigenous plants and, and he says, you know, it's really changed his whole perception of gardening as such because if he goes in to, you know, perhaps clean up a particular area or prune a branch that's fallen and, and he'll come across a spider web, he'll think to himself, oh, I don't want to disturb that spider from going about its daily business, you know, if I grab a coffee and sit down and watch it instead. So yes. it's completely changed his mindset around gardening and it's so wonderful that you just have the time to stop and look, look at the beauty of a simple spider web. You do. and I think that's one of the really beautiful things that we have if we have the the luxury and i'm, I'm not everyone does um, and that's a thing but if you have the luxury of growing things around us and then you use the time your time wisely you've got to stop and look as soon as you look the more you look the more you'll see and then it's a great mindfulness exercise it's a very spiritual experience for me Oh, it is absolutely a spiritual experience and i mean i sort of liken it as well to i, I like to do a bit of snorkeling when I can and you could put your goggles and snorkel on and put your head in a um, you know a, a 30 centimetre rock pool and you'll just be in trance for an hour because there's so much going on and it's the same in nature you can uh, you know I challenge anyone to go and stand in front of a tree and where you can see the foliage and really look at it and you'll see so much action going on and you'll step away going oh my goodness this plant this whole plant is just a home for so many critters. It's, mm. it's absolutely mind-boggling. Well, AB, why did you decide to write the book? Uh, look, I think, you know, when when we give gifts, we often give gifts that uh, we want to receive ourselves. And I think publishers also say that when we write books, we write the books that we need ourselves. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, I, as I say, I have had that empathy um, since childhood with animals. And uh, I, I had a strong motivation to sort of play a role in contributing um, to the betterment of the world, but I'm not a scientist, I can't develop a cure for cancer, I'm not a teacher, so I can't, you know, help shape the next generation from that regard, but I'm a writer, I'm a horticulturalist and a conservationist, so I thought I need to be able to combine my skills uh, for good, I suppose. And there was my publisher, um, Diana Hill, who published and edited the book, who came to me with the idea. She, I mean, she knows how much I love the natural world, and she came to me with this idea, and, and I'll be forever grateful because she obviously recognised in me that it, it was such a such an important message for me, I suppose. So I, I think being able to share my knowledge, I suppose, is something that uh, really appealed to me as well and, and hopefully help people on their own habitat journey. Well, I think you've made a, mess, a fantastic contribution to our lives by publishing this book, and I just want to say thank you. It's called, oh, thank you. <laughs> it's called Habitat. It's published by Murdoch Books, and our guest has been A.B. Bishop. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's been a delight to be on the show. A conversation I enjoyed a lot, as you could tell. Habitat is the name of the book. Once again, Murdoch Books is the publisher. Here's a little you know, example of... Um, how this book opens your mind to new things. You, you know those uh, big dragonflies, they have a long tail. And when I was a child, I used to be really frightened of them because um, I thought they could sting me and, you know. 
This is what uh, this is a little snippet from AB's book. Although dragonflies and damselflies are similar, dragonflies are usually larger. Damselflies are smaller and more slender, and at rest usually close their wings above their body, while dragonflies usually rest with their uh, wings open. So that's you know how to recognise them. Now listen to this. These guys are definitely goodies in the garden as they eat mosquitoes and midges. They lay their eggs in freshwater in ponds, dams and watercourses. So you don't want to chase them off or, worst thing, spray them or squash them. You want to help create uh, something that lets them uh, lay their eggs in your garden because then they'll keep the mosquitoes down. Uh, That's clever. That's clever. That's a good book. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.